Would you now please turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 19. John 19, we will begin reading in verse 23. John 19, 23. This is the living and abiding word of the living God. The inerrant, infallible Word of God. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Pray with me. Our great God, we do entrust ourselves to you in this hour and pray for you to lead us and teach us. For the sake of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking, arguably the two most renowned physicists of the last century, spent both an enormous amount of time trying to come up with an encompassing framework that linked together all physical phenomena on a fundamental level. They wanted a single equation that explained the physics of the entire universe. This is known as the theory of everything. The sacred scriptures, on the other hand, they have a theory of everything of their own, or rather, an explanation of everything. And that is that before the foundation of the world, the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, entered into an agreement or into a covenant with each other with respect to the universe that they were to create. The Father promised His Son that in the space-time continuum, He would give Him a name that is above every name. And He spoke to His, his Son about a kingdom and a glory and a people. The Son, on the other hand, would have to do some things. He would have to agree to a number of things. For one, he would have to enter into that creation as a man. And he would have to place himself under the divine law by which God the Father was ruling the universe. The Son, moreover, would have to render an obedience unto death. He would have to become a curse 
so that he could rescue this people, this bride that the father was giving him. And that meant that the death of Jesus Christ was really an exercise in trust. 1 Peter 2.23 speaks of it in those terms. While suffering, Peter says, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus was trusting that the Father was going to make good on his covenant promises made in eternity. And in that, Jesus was actually leaving an example for us to follow. Because the life that we ourselves are called to live is a life of childlike trust in God. We are to rely on Him moment by moment. Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own what? Understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your what? Paths. Jesus is our example for this. He trusted God entirely. He trusted Him, first of all, even with the loss of His dignity. He handed His own dignity to the Father for the temporary loss of it in the cross. Look at verse 23. And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So th- th- what we're talking about here is, a, is a, a, what was known as a quaternium, the, uh, the smallest military unit in the Roman army, comprised of four soldiers, because it talks about there being four parts, one for each. These four soldiers, they would have made Jesus to lie down with his arms stretched out, and they nailed his hands to the horizontal beam that he had carried all the way to Golgotha. And then they raised up that beam and affixed it to the vertical post that was probably already fixed there. And they nailed his feet to that vertical beam. In other words, they crucified the Lord. And it says that once they had done this, then they move on to the next thing. And that was to take his outer garments and divide them among themselves. That would have been his belt, sandals, headgear, or uh, an outer robe, four parts, one for each. But there was also, it says, a piece that was beneath all of this, and that was a tunic, as it says here, that was worn next to the skin, like an undergarment, a long piece of linen cloth that ran through the torso down to the mid, mid leg. And John says that this one was seamless, woven in one piece that may mean that this was an expensive piece of clothing perhaps perhaps Jesus was uh, wearing this as a gift from one of his disciples uh, he surely had some disciples who were well to do uh, and it was seamless so it couldn't be divided and for that reason the soldiers then have to cast lots in other words they do what amounts to a rolling of the dice they uh, realize they can't divide it so they decide that one of them is going to have it by chance. So verse 24 says that they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. So they resorted basically to what amounted to a rock, paper, scissor uh, contest to see who would keep this tunic. But think about the horrific callousness of these men. They were so covetous that they could do this. They could play games right in front, not only of the man that they had just executed, but even in, uh, in front of the people who loved him and were weeping for him. 
John the Baptist had actually spoken to soldiers in Luke chapter 3 verse 14 when they came to him. And what did he say to them? He said, stop taking things by force, but rather be content with your wages. That is what, would have, what, that is what godliness would have looked like in a soldier. And yet these men were the opposite of that. They were so covetous, they had turned into monsters. They were uh, callous. And so what do they do? They, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing, even after they had just stripped him naked. There's some, uh, some uh, it's somewhat unclear at this point as to whether Jesus was wearing anything at all, uh, whether he was crucified completely in the nude. Uh, this is, uh, there's evidence by ancient writers that, that the Romans did crucify people uh, in that way. However, some of the Jewish writers, they, they would question as whether a person uh, should be provided with enough of a covering to, to uh to afford a minimal amount of modesty. So the Lord could have either been uh, completely naked on the cross, hanging there for all to see, or he could have been uh, covered with a small piece of cloth as he's typically depicted. But either way, this is absolute, utter humiliation of the kind that we can't even describe with words. And it was, he says here, the, the, the fulfillment of divine prophecy. The second half of verse 24 says, This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and my clothing. And for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. The passage here is uh, Psalm 22 verse 18. King, Jane, uh, King, King David wrote that, describing actually his own experience. Uh, as he was being attacked by his own enemies. He was a type of the Messiah. He could speak prophetically for the coming son of David, the, the coming king. Uh, but of course, these experiences that, that he was describing in Psalm 22, he was describing them in a poetic way. Uh, nobody had actually uh, taken his outer garments and divided them. Nobody had actually cast lots for his, his clothing. That was a poetic description of him explaining how humiliated he had been by his own enemies. And yet what applies to David poetically applies to Jesus in a literal fashion. This did, Jesus, this did happen to Jesus. Both things. Uh, they did divide up his apparel and they did also cast lots for them. The precision is remarkable. Something that David never actually went through, but was speaking poetically about, was actually happening line by line to Jesus Christ. And that shows the power of God that He has decreed all things and that He controls everything that takes place in the world. And even the most heinous acts are under His own jurisdiction. The humiliation of His own dear Son was taking place because God had decreed it and God was ultimately the one making it happen. You say, but why? Why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus, we understand, dying, but why utter shame? Why that way? Why couldn't they just kill him somewhere and not shame him in this way? And I want to answer that by taking you back to the beginning. So let's go ahead and, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 
3 says there, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any of the tree, from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. From the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, again, what you see here is the temptation of Satan. He had come into the garden. Uh, Adam had been tasked with keeping the garden. He is not watchful. He is not caring for what is going on. And Satan possesses, takes over control of some serpent. It says that this ser- it says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. Could be that because of that reason, Satan took up that particular animal, or else that the writer is alerting us that this is uh, uh, not normal. That uh, this serpent in particular is something else is going on with it, and so the uh, uh, devil takes the same approach that he is taking still today. He begins by questioning the word of God. You want to hear how 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 Satan approaches you? The first thing he does is he's going to question the veracity of God's word. Did he actually say that to you? Does the Bible actually say that you shouldn't do X, Y, or Z? Is that really true? And so forth and so on. This is how temptation begins. But this is how he gets the serpent. First, he uh, introduces, this is how Satan gets the woman. He first introduces the doubt and then denies and then begins to cast uh, shade on God's character. He begins to say, God, the problem is God doesn't want you to be like him. God does not want you to be, uh, God, God is holding you back from something. Uh, you will be like him. He's jealous. Uh, now there's a questioning of God's character. And so the woman is led into sin. But uh, what we want to point out here primarily is that Notice this text speaks of once the fall takes place, this this text speaks of the eyes of Adam and Eve being open. That's not uh, obviously referring to the physical eyes because those were open beforehand. 
Notice it's speaking of their spiritual eyes because they had a spiritual understanding of who God was. So the reference to their eyes being open at that point is to the eyes of their conscience. The devil actually had promised uh, Eve that if she ate the fruit, she would know good and evil. And that becomes true. The problem, uh, the lie that the, ser the serpent uh, had made, though, was in the way in which Eve and Adam would know good and evil. And that would be experientially. In other words, they themselves had once been good and now they were evil. So they knew what good e and evil was. They knew what corruption was because now they were corrupt. They knew what not being corrupt was because they, there was a time when they weren't corrupt. So they knew it experientially. They could tell the difference between good and evil, not on the basis of God's word alone, which had been the case before. God said, that's not good. That is evil. And therefore they knew it. And they did know it at that point. But now they knew it in a different way. They knew it experientially. And so what was happening was that now they had an active conscience. They had a mechanism within that pricked them when they transgressed the divine law. And so how, how does conscience first manifest itself? Well, notice it filled them with shame. Shame was the first thing. It says that they knew that they were naked. They came to realize that they were naked. Not that for the first time they noticed that they had no physical covering on. Their physical eyes would have told them that. But rather, they felt exposed. They were naked. They realized that they were naked. They were exposed. Before eating of the tree, Adam and Eve, they had been as un unembarrassed about their nakedness as a one-year-old boy is of his. And there is a connection between the two because the one-year-old is um, actually relatively innocent. But now they knew that they were naked. They felt exposed. And that was their conscience alerting them that uh, something had happened. Something had changed. Something was wrong with them now such that they needed to be covered up. Adam and Eve, they were made originally in the image of God. But now that they had sinned, that image had been vitiated. It had been marred. It had been deformed. They were now a living lie because they were supposed to be projecting who God was. And yet they were a twisted, crooked kind of creature. And so they were sinners and they had, they felt it in themselves, inward desires to do things that God's law prohibited. And they were naturally inclined now to do that which God himself hated. So they became aware that they had lost their pristine dignity. They were no longer dignified creatures. They were debased, debased creatures and they could no longer therefore stand in the presence of uh, each other or the angels or a holy God. So what do they need to do? They realize they need covering. They need covering. So verse 7 says that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now obviously the, we can just tell immediately that that a garment made of fig leaves is, is insufficient to actually cover anyone, 
right? But that's actually an illustration of the principle that, that the sinner is utterly unable to cover his own sin, to take care of his own shame in any real way, unable entirely. You, you cannot hide your own sin. You cannot do it. You may be deceived into thinking that you can actually hide your own sin, but the reality is that you cannot do it. In fact, if Scripture would have you do anything at all, it would be to expose your own sin and trust God to do the covering Himself. Look at uh, Psalm 32. Psalm 32 verses 1 through 5. Psalm 32, verse 1. A Psalm of David says, there, says the superscription, Amasco. He says in verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? Covered. Covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin. I exposed my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Amen. So notice there the, what the psalmist is doing is bringing out his own sin to God. Doing the exposing himself and trusting that God will do the covering. Look also at uh, Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That's a promise. He who confesses and forsakes them will find com compassion. Notice two elements there. Do you want compassion? Do you long for mercy? Well, here's the two steps. Confess, forsake. Confess, forsake. God will do the covering. You do the exposing. In, in Adam's case, he rightly was ashamed. The, the shame was appropriate. It was what he should have been, wanting to be clothed. In fact, we live in a culture where nakedness is prevalent and seen as a good thing and as a desirable thing. That shows how far we've gone from what is appropriate, from what God desires of us. He desires that we should want to be covered. So that the, the shame was right. The, the, the wanting a covering was appropriate. The problem with Adam, of course, is that he tried to cover his own guilt, his own shame. He tried to do it himself. And this, is a, this is, brings us to a, a, a good point here. And that is that sin always, always will bring shame. But whether 
a man comes to God for a covering or not, determines what kind of shame your sin will bring you. Because on the one hand, your shame could be the eternal kind of shame. An eternal shame. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. And verse uh, 16. The prophet says... They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idol will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. So there is an assumption there that there is a shame that goes into eternity. And that is what was going to happen to the enemies of God's people. And uh, Jeremiah, a book over, Jeremiah 20, verse 11, says something similar. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgiven. So notice uh, Jeremiah the prophet, he uh, understood that there is a kind of shame that God brings that is everlasting and that will not be taken away. And this is obviously the shame of those who are perishing in hell. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 24 speaks of those who are cast out of the city and who's, who are burning in the lake of fire. And it says that they are an abhorrence to all mankind. And Daniel chapter 12 verses, uh, verse 2 says that those who will be, there will be some who will be raised up to a resurrection of everlasting contempt. So there's an eternal shame. But on the other hand, you also could be ashamed of your sin in a way that is temporary and actually leading to glory. I want to show that to you from Ezekiel chapter 16. And uh, verse 60, Ezekiel 16 verse 60, this is a, a crucial passage in which God is describing the history of, of Judah and Israel in terms of two sisters who uh, gave themselves over to harlotry and to uh, 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 treacher, the, the treachery of God's covenant. And yet toward the end, uh, he speaks in these terms. Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 60. Nevertheless, he says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. This would be the new covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. 
but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. In other words, the Lord is saying there is a kind of shame that leads to everlasting glory. And that is the kind of shame that He's promising the children of Israel that they will be ashamed with. They will mourn as one who mourns for their only son. And this is, of course, we see this kind of shame exemplified in the Ninevites. It says that they believed in God through the preaching of Jonah and they put on sackcloth and they, uh, they humiliated themselves. And this is the same kind of shame that uh, you experience when you decide, I am no longer going to hide sin. I am no longer going to hide sin. I'm going to actually bring it out into the open. Bring it out into the open. Not, do not keep it a secret anymore because only then will you be in a real position to kill it, to do away with it. No more secrets. No more hiding. Is there a real shame in that and revealing the things that have taken place in the darkness? Yes, there is. But there is motivation for this in the fact that Jesus himself was humiliated in a way that was beyond description. And so you'll only be joining yourself, experiencing what he himself experienced in that he was ashamed. And his shame was unlike any kind of shame that you will ever go through because he was ashamed actually with an eternal kind of shame. With the first kind of shame that we spoke of, because while he, while he hung there naked on that cross, and the Father came in the full exercise of His wrath, and for those three hours, He took in eternal shame. And why did He do that? Well, so that you and I would only have to experience temporary shame. That's why. Because He was acting as a sacrifice for all who would ever believe. He was taking on the reproaches of those who would come to Him by faith. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the shame that He was experiencing, that was yours. That was your shame. And so He was ashamed eternally so that you might be ashamed temporarily. He was at that point becoming the garment by which God would clothe the one who comes to Him by faith. In the same way that later on in Genesis, God slays an animal and clothes Adam and Eve with the garments of that animal. In the same way, He put His own Son to death so that He might give you life. Life. So that He might cover you. And again, all of this is an act of trust on the part of the Son. The Father had asked Him to do so. The Father came to Him in eternity past and said, Son, would you do this for me? Would you take on their shame? Would you take on their sin? Would you take on this kind of utter humiliation? Would you do it? And in exchange, receive them as your people. And in exchange, receive a name that is above every name. Would you be their atonement? And as he is undergoing this experience, he is entrusting himself 
to the Father. He is entrusting the Father even with the loss of His dignity. What else did He entrust God with? Well, notice He entrusted God, He's entrusted Himself to God with the loss or the temporary loss of His ministry. Back to uh, John chapter 19, verse uh, 26. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, um, some people uh, take issue with this because Luke chapter 23, verse 49 says that the women uh, were standing at a distance when it mentions the women. It says that they were standing at a distance, but this text says that they were standing by the cross. Uh, and so some have thought that that's a contradiction in the two accounts, but obviously it's not a contradiction. Think about it. Jesus was on the cross for hours. And so it could be that at some point they are by the cross. It could be that as the crowds come to make fun and to mock Jesus, as it did happen, they then recede back into the background. And so there are points in the passion narrative at which they're close and points at which they are afar off. But there is uh, some debate here as to uh, whether John here is speaking of three or four women. Uh, was the name of Mary's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, or are these two different women? And it seems that they, there are two different women here. So there, there's four, not three, because it wouldn't have been usual for uh, parents to name two of their children by the same name. So I believe that there are four women here. The first one, of course, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, we know, what do we know of her? Well, that she was an unusually godly woman. Uh, if, you, if you read the Magnificat in uh, Luke chapter 2, it says, uh, you'll, you'll notice that she was actually uh, deeply acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and she was only a teenager when she conceived the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and yet she already had um, a deep, deep knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, such that in her prayer in the Magnificat and Luke 2, she's making allusions to the law and the Psalms and the prophets, and she's including repeated echoes of Aunt Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. So she had a, no a lot of knowledge of the Old Testament, but it wasn't just head knowledge. She also was a, a, a believing a uh, woman, a pious woman, she was uh, believing and submissive with a quiet spirit. If you read through the birth narratives, you'll notice that um, the, the angel tells her that she is going to conceive as a virgin. And she immediately accepts and does not question what the angel said. And she, moreover, then follows Joseph dutifully as Joseph is told to go to Egypt. She goes with him. And takes Jesus there. So Mary really is a saintly woman. Of course, we're told by the Roman Catholic Church uh, falsely that she was therefore sinless. But that would not be true at all. In fact, in Luke chapter 1 verse 47 in the Magnificat, the, one of the first things that Mary says is, She calls God my Savior. If you have been saved by God is because you have been saved from your sins. So Mary needed salvation. And not only that, but Jesus had come to save his people from their sins. She, she 
knew this because this was announced to her and yet she becomes a follower of Jesus. Meaning she was well aware that she was a sinner and she was a follower of Jesus. She's here at the cross and in fact uh, she'll be with the rest of the disciples in the upper room uh, in at the beginning of the book of Acts where the first church is gathered together. She's there. So Mary is a part, another member of the church of Jesus Christ. Now there's a, another woman here, and she is uh, uh, mentioned to, as Mary's sister. Uh, John doesn't say what her name is, but the other Gospels reveal that her name was Salome. Uh, she was the, the mother of James and John. And uh, we see a little bit of her in, in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, you don't have to t turn there, I'll, I'll, I'll read this for you, but... Uh, she appears in Ma Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this woman, Ma uh, Mary's sister. So John would have been a, a, a cousin of Jesus. Uh, then the mother of the sons of, of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're, talk what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Uh, so this all began as a conversation uh, this conversation was, was started by this woman, Mary's sister, Salome. And if you notice the text there, it says that she was bowing down to Jesus and making requests. And so even though the request itself, you understand to be wrongheaded, the reality is that what is commendable is that she knew to bow down to Christ. She also believed that Jesus was going to have a kingdom of his own. And so she is a believing woman. She is one of Christ's flock. And uh, in Mark chapter 16, later on, we'll see that she is one of the women who comes to the tomb of Jesus bearing spices. So along with the mother of Jesus, here's a second disciple of Jesus. And that would be her own sister, Salome. There's two disciples of Christ here. Uh, there's a third uh, woman here, and that would be Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 also uh, mentions her as one of the women who came to Jesus' tomb on the morning of the resurrection. And uh, in Luke chapter 24, verse 10, she is said to have been one of the ones who tried to persuade the apostles on the morning of the resurrection that Jesus had risen. So again, we're talking about a third woman who was... Part of God, part of the flock of Jesus. These were his disciples. Uh, he loved these women and they served him as their master. And uh, lastly, you have Mary Magdalene, of course. We're, we're, we're more familiar with her. She would have been of the village of Magdala, which would have been on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke chapter 8 verse 2 says that Jesus had healed Mary Magdalene. Uh, from the possession of seven demons. Uh, and uh, it says uh, there that she also had supported Jesus 
out of her own means and out of her own, uh, Jesus and his disciples out of her own means. So she would have been uh, originally a wealthy woman who had uh, a possession of seven demons, which manifested itself probably in some form of physical disability or, or, Ill, or illness because Luke describes the exorcism as a kind of healing. So uh, Mary Magdalene uh, was these things, but she would go on to be even the first person to see the risen Christ. In uh, John 20, just a chapter over, in verse 11, uh, she's the one who is uh, standing outside of the tomb and weeping. And as she wept, it says she stopped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one on the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me, where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. So here was a, a woman who sincerely loved Jesus Christ, who was utterly devoted to him. And so all of these four women, they were devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. He was their teacher, he was their shepherd, and yet... He is leaving them. And he understands and knows that he is being utterly humiliated. And so even though he is being crucified and he knows that on the other side of this there's glory. He also understands that they can't see past that. He was leaving them in a sea of despair and confusion as they saw him apparently defeated by his enemies. And so... What did he have to do at this moment? Well, he was entrusting God with his own ministry. He was entrusting these disciples to the Father. That while he was being humiliated, the Father could and would in fact keep the faith of these women intact. This is actually what he had prayed back in uh, John chapter 17. This, is, uh, this had been in his heart before uh, when he is praying in the high priestly prayer. It says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. In other words, he had been concerned about this, that his flock, he was leaving. He was a faithful shepherd, full of love and compassion toward them, and he was entrusting them now to the Father. And so this brings a, a, a principle that we all that relates to all of us. And that is that God will always call you in one way or another to entrust even your work to Him. You'll be faced with the option of either keeping that which you have worked for or risk losing it all for the honor of God. So are you willing even to... Lose perhaps your job because you're being asked to do that which dishonors God. Or uh, are you holding on to things by your own wisdom 
something like that happened to John the Baptist. If you look at John 3, verse 25. John 3, 25. Uh, John was exercising his ministry. And it says in verse 25 that there's, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciple with a Jew about purification. That probably means that the Jews were coming to John and saying, Hey, look, there's another, you've been baptizing, you come up with this practice of baptism, and there's another man over there named Jesus who is also baptizing, and I am a Jew, and that purifi the purifications, the rituals of the Jews, they've been going around for as long as time has been. Uh, Moses gave these to us who are, our religion is ancient and yet here you are you came to establish your own thing and now there's two of you so now you are uh, uh, breaking apart God's people and which one is better is is the ancient religion better or is your new thing uh, better than uh, what is what, what we're what we're doing what we've been doing before and so it says in verse 26 they they that the these disciples after fighting with john uh, the, with the jew about this they came to john and said to him rabbi so now they're they're gonna fight about what was going on with jesus rabbi he who was with you beyond the jordan to whom you have testified behold he's baptizing and all are coming to him so they were saying Shouldn't, wouldn't you do right to be jealous here? Because you're the one who started this. And now he's making more disciples. He's stealing your thunder. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoice, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So notice he's handing over his ministry to God. He's entrusting his ministry and his work to God. He's saying, so what if it all goes away? This is how God wants it to be. So... Do we do that ourselves? Is that our own view that we entrust God with all of our words, our works moment by moment? Now beyond entrusting his father with the temporary loss of his dignity and of his ministry, Jesus lastly entrusted his father with the loss of his loved one. Look at back at uh, John 19 verses 26 and 27. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved... Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Uh, the verb to see here in, in verse 26, it refers to a, a scene with compassionate love and care. He, he's casting his eyes on his mother with concern. He, and then he looks at his disciple and it says the disciples, the disciple whom he loved. By the way, that would have been John, as we know. He's the writer of this book. You know, uh, people always are looking for ways to identify themselves. Um, what is it that identifies you? Some some people say, uh, "Well, um, I'm a I'm a mother. I'm a I'm a grandmother. I'm 
I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm a success story. Um, I, whatever, you name it. Of course, uh, nowadays they say I'm, I'm gay. Uh, I'm LGBTQ. So now even perversions become ways of identifying themselves. But here is how John identifies himself as. Beloved of the Lord. Right? He is, he loves me. That's who I am. I am loved by Christ, the one whom Jesus loves. He can't speak of himself in any other way, but by saying, Jesus loves me. That's his identity. That's who he is. Beloved of Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. Is that you? John, uh, it's, it's, it's just admirable the way that, that he identifies himself because he's, he's right by not even speaking of himself as John, but as one whom Jesus loved. But that obviously this, this, this realization of the love of Christ is what controlled him. It is what made him ready to uh, offer a service that was above and beyond. Jesus knows this, that John is, his whole heart is, for Jesus, and for that reason, he entrusts John with the care of his own mother. He he looks at, at, at Mary and says, "Woman." By the way, that's the title of respect in that culture. It sounds disrespectful in ours, but in, in theirs would have been a title of respect. Woman, behold your son. And then he tells John, "Behold your mother." So it says that John took her into his own household from that time. By the way, that that um, that he took her into his own household, means that when John is said to have left everything to follow Jesus, uh, to have left houses and, and, and siblings and father and mother and whatnot, uh, that, that language is, uh, is, a, is a spiritual way of speaking. Not that he uh, sold his house and had no place to be anymore. Obviously, he still has a house. He still has people that he is caring for. Uh, so we have to obviously interpret the language of leaving all things in light of what it says here, that this man was still responsible, uh, still at his own uh, household that, uh, that he cared for. Uh, but it's, it's obvious, on the other hand, that by this time, Joseph, uh, Jesus' uh, earthly father, had passed away, and Mary's a widow, and so the, the care of her would have fallen naturally on the firstborn son who was Jesus. He would have been responsible for providing for Mary. And he transfers her care to John. Notice he did have brothers and sisters, but he's not transferring her care to them because they are not disciples of him, even as Mary herself was they're not Christians and they won't be until after the resurrection. So he prefers giving the care of his mother to one who was a fellow disciple. The the the, the bonds of of faith were stronger even than the bonds of blood. But this is a demonstration again of the selfless love of Jesus Christ, the perfect love of Jesus Christ. There he is suffering. There he is in excruciating agony and utmost shame and he's not thinking about himself but rather he is caring for his loved one 
And see Jesus, by the way, that it is right for a person as he nears the end of his life and is aware of it. To uh, Part of dying well is to settling your own, the affairs of this life. Jesus was doing this. But on the other hand, he is also honoring the divine law, which had said in Exodus 20, 12, Honor your father and your mother. And 1 Timothy Chapter 5 and uh, verse 8 says that if anyone doesn't provide for those of his own household, he's actually worse than an unbeliever. Uh, I'll read that uh, quickly to you. 1 Timothy 5 uh, verse 8. In fact, verse uh, 3, he, uh, he is, is speaking to the issue of what is a, a, what classifies as a widow who deserves to be cared for financially by the church. And so uh, Paul says the following, 1 Timothy 5.3, Honor widows, uh, honor uh, is often a term of payment. Um, give her remuneration. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for this is, this is acceptable in the sight of God. So here is the responsibility of their children to care for um, aging parents who cannot care for themselves. Falls on them. Um, verse 8, then if you flip there, uh, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own household, if, if, anyone, if a son is refusing to care for his aging uh, parent, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, Jesus is obviously not going to fall into that category, and he's showing us by example that he is caring for his own mother. In this case, he is transferring the care of her to his disciple, John. Now, on the other hand, a, a person could use... A command, a command like this, well, you ought to care for your own household, right? That's a command from God. And a man can use that, that commandment to actually not do what God says in the first place. Not fulfill another divine mission that God, God has for him. To not go to the cross. So you might say, Father, well, you've entrusted me with the responsibility of caring for my loved ones. And so I can't obey you in this divine mission that you've given me because otherwise I wouldn't be able to obey you in the other mission that you gave me of caring for my own. But that was actually the problem of the disciple in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22. Matthew 8, 22. Uh, actually, um, Matthew eight twenty one. Another of the disciples said to him, "Lord, permit permit me to go and bury my father." But Jesus said to him, "Follow me, and allow the dead to bury their own dead." Follow me. the 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 idea of the dead burying their own dead was this idea of. I need to hang around until my, my father or my mother dies, perhaps so that I can get an inheritance, or perhaps because I feel this sense of responsibility that I need to be there. But in that case, Jesus actually was saying, come after me. 
And let the dead bury their own dead. There will be other people who can do this. And trust, and trust the care of your aging parent to somebody who can do this. So again, this comes back to an issue of trust. If God calls you to a situation in which you have to let go and allow Him to care in the way that only He can care, then will you do it? And that is what Jesus Himself was doing here. He was entrusting His Father with the care of His loved one. But again, uh, Jesus was, was fully trusting His Father in every area, whether with the loss of His dignity or of, of His ministry or of His loved one. He was living and doing so a perfect example for us. He trusted God with everything. And for that reason, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, trust always leads to divine exaltation. I'm going to close with this passage. Luke chapter 18. When you trust God, that always ends in divine exaltation. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. It says, and he, also, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up, up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pray with me. Oh God, we pray that you would make us a broken-hearted people because we know that it is a broken and contrite heart that you will not despise. Because in so doing, we'll be trusting in you. We'll be trusting in Jesus, even with the loss of our own dignity, that he took eternal shame for us so that we might be set free, so that we might be clothed with His glory. We thank You for the provision that You've made in Him. And I pray for those of us, uh, those who are among us, who have never come to the knowledge of Christ, even those who think that they have, and yet they have been deceiving themselves for so long. I pray that You would break open their hearts, and that you would give them to see their sin for what it is. Transgression against you and you only. Oh, please give us to be a humble people. For the sake of your own son. Amen. Amen.